So today, we're going to dive into a book of the Bible that's audacious. It's crazy. It's from the Old Testament. We're looking at the book of Judges. Get ready for the book of Judges. I hope you're ready. I don't know if you know what you signed up for today, because we're about to dive off into some text here, okay? So let's, let's, let's set the context. Let's talk about what was happening, what the back framework is. Today, we're starting just in part one in the book of Judges, and then we're going to dive into this over the next several weeks together. We're going to pull out some truths that apply to our lives today. So here's what was happening, is the book of Judges is actually a narrative of Israel's history. And so it tells us what was happening in the nation of Israel. And Israel is God's chosen people. And so a lot of the Old Testament is about their stories. And yet their stories kind of mirror our stories and they apply to our lives today. So let's talk about where it was in the timeline, historical context. So here's where they were. So if you remember a bit of the Bible history, right? So you had Moses, everybody remembers Moses, burning bush, parts the Red Sea, leads them out of Egypt in captivity, and then he is going to lead them into the promised land, but yet Moses dies, okay? And then do you remember who came after Moses? Joshua, right? And so Joshua is known as this great leader. He is full of courage. He's bold. He has the anointing of the Lord on him. And through Joshua, some amazing things happen, and they drive out this group of people known as the Canaanites, and they inherit what would be called the promised land. So you remember your Bible history. Then Joshua actually dies off. And so Joshua, his part of the story in the Bible is somewhere around 1380 BC, okay? And then we come into this place of the book of Judges somewhere around uh, 330 years is what it lasts. And then we go into the place where at this period in time, there was no king in Israel. And so it was set up as God would be over them, and then the law had been handed through Moses, and it was believed in God's intent was that he would be sufficient, that they would simply obey his law, that they would follow his law, and so there was no need for a king in Israel. Nobody wanted a king in Israel. And so for this 330 years, this is where Judges happens, and then we'll dive into the historical account of what takes place. And then we see King Saul And then we see King David, and that puts David somewhere around 1050 B.C. So right here in this window of time is where the book of Judges occurs. And so for 330 years, they're without this monarchy, right? And, and so during those times, they're kind of like a, like a, like a commonwealth. If you, if you were to imagine like how America was founded. So we had the 13 original colonies. We had a lot of similarities, a lot of common belief, a lot of purposes and religion, but yet we didn't have a president yet in that moment. And so they were kind of like a commonwealth. And if you remember your Old Testament history, there were actually 12 tribes, okay? And so uh, you had Abraham, right? And you remember... Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. This is where my wife tells me, please don't sing into the microphone. <laughs> and many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham had many sons. Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac. 
And then Isaac goes on to have a son of his own named Jacob. And then Jacob has what? Twelve sons. You guys are doing really well. Okay. And so from these twelve, and even the descendants of them, become the tribes of Israel. And so think of this geographical area. Again, they're kind of not yet a monarchy. They're, they're, you know, they're being established. And so within this geographical area, there's little mini pockets of people, and they call them tribes of people. And they establish who's going to kind of be over each area. And they stem from, ten of them stem from, the direct descendants of Jacob. And then you have a couple of them that are more the lineage of the sons of those, okay? And so here's where Israel is at at this point in time. And, and so the idea is that they would simply obey the law, and God introduces this idea of judges, and this is where the book is named after. And they're kind of, they're not kings, they're, 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 they're heroes of sorts, and, and their, their sole role is to go in and to, to help govern in a way where they point people back towards the law. And so God uses them at specific times where he kind of pours out his spirit on them and they do some supernatural things. Maybe you remember the story of Samson where he collapsed the pillars and it fell in, his great strength that he had. We're going to talk about some of those inside of this series. And so the judges are established and they kind of rule in this 330-year span. And so to set this up, to give you a better idea of the historical context, I want to lean you into a resource, okay? And so I want to present to you, and maybe you've never heard of this before, it's called The Bible Project. Any of you ever heard of The Bible Project before? Fantastic. I want you to write this down. I want you to go home and check it out on your own time, thebibleproject.com. What they do is they take the Bible stories that you and I read and they illustrate them in fantastic ways. And they give you a framework from Genesis to Revelation. They also give you themes of the Bible, key words of the Bible. And so today, as we start the book of Judges, I want to show you a video of Judges and help you to see how the book works together. Much better visual representation than I can give you just in oral, okay? And so Grab your popcorn, get yourself cozy. It is about seven minutes in length, okay? Take a look. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. 
The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. 
God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. So in the book of Judges, and by the way, this is the BibleProject.com. So if you didn't jot it down, make sure you get that. A great resource, okay? So check those videos out. I just, I even have an Apple TV at the house, and I just go through them, and I'm just watching them. And it helps. It just puts the whole context of the Bible together and pieces the stories together. So uh, it, throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Judges, there's this repeated pattern, as he was alluding to in here, and it just continues to happen. And so over this 330 years, you can put the graphic here, here's what was happening, okay? And so you would have a group of people, and they understood God's word and God's standards and what was des desired of them, and then they would disobey. They would decide in their heart, I'm going to do what I want to do, regardless of what is said, even though I might have a conviction that this is the right thing to do, I'm going to do me. And so they decide to disobey, and in that moment, maybe there's consequences immediately, maybe it was prolonged for a little bit, but ultimately in every single time it always ended up in disaster. And so this disaster comes and of course the people are now feeling, woe is me, I've got myself stuck, I need help, and they cry out and then God is so faithful. And God comes and he brings deliverance. And what would happen here is they would get delivered and then they would cycle back to the top. And we see this pattern repeated over and over and over again in all of Israel's history, especially in the book of Judges, some six times over as we go through it. And when I look at this, can we just be real about it? This is a pattern for us. This is the pattern for even me and even places in my own life where I have seen this. It's like, okay, I know what I should be doing, but right now I want to do what I want to do, and so I'm going to choose, and so somewhere, and you make the same choice. So somewhere along the way, we make a conscious decision and we disobey, right? And that leads to problems. 
Every time. It always leads to some sort of problems. And then disaster strikes, and in some way we start crying out. And maybe it was a, you know, it's that one phone call that you get. Hey, Dad, um, I'm down at the jail, and it is not a field trip. Can you come and get me? Maybe it was the phone call to a parent. Maybe it was a loved one. You're calling out. I'm in disaster. I'm stuck. Please help me. Maybe it was a phone call to God. I mean, God shows up in that moment, or the people come, and they bail you out, and there's some sort of deliverance. And in that moment, you do what we all do. I swear I'll never go back there again. I will never do this again. And you don't for about two weeks. And then the pattern repeats itself. And this seems to be characteristic of human nature, right? And so we look at this story while we're going to see the failure of mankind. This is really the picture of God in his character as the redeemer, as the constant pursuer, as the deliverer. And he invites Israel time and time again to come back to him despite their shortcomings and despite their failures and despite their empty promises. And so that's what's happening here in this story. And so for some 330 years, they continue this cycle. They ride the merry-go-round. And so today, I actually want to begin with the end. I want to go to the very end of the book, I want to go to the most disturbing part, as it says, in, in, in all of it. And we're going to go to 19 and 21, 19 through 21. And I, and I just, I have to give you a warning, okay? So this is your warning. This is explicit content. And as I scan the room today, I, I see mostly mature ears in the room, and, but I'm still going to be sensitive today as we go through this. I've got to warn you, this is a vulgar story. This is the kind of stuff that when I read it, I can't believe it actually exists in the Bible. And if I'm real with you, it kind of makes me sick to my stomach that it's even in there. This is a story that it is not PG-13. It is barely fitting into the R category, and it pushes the boundary of even R. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to present it in the PG-13 and there are going to be some places that it's going to be so graphic, that it's going to be so vulgar, that I'm actually not going to read it to you. And I'm not even going to put it on the screen. So what I want you to do right now is whether you have a paperback or you have an iPhone or an iPad or a tablet or something, I want you to make your way over to Judges chapter 19, okay? Put your finger in it, bookmark it, hold it, whatever it's going to be, because there's going to be a point in the sermon today where I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, okay, now read this for yourself. All right, because I'm not even going to put it up here. It's that bad. Trust me. Okay. And so if you're watching online or you're watching this later, you need to do the same. You're going to need to pull this out and read it for yourself. So we're beginning with the end in mind. In fact, this story is so bad that maybe you grew up in a Christian home and maybe they read you Bible stories. And, and you were like, oh, hey, 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 tell me, tell me the story. Hey, Daddy, tell me the story about the, the, the concubine and the chainsaw, because that's what this story is going to have. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we saved that story. That's a Halloween story, okay? So we're going to pull out a Halloween story right here in the middle of April, and we're going to dive into it together, okay? So I can't even believe this shows up in the book. It's in there. I'm telling you, there are things that are in the Bible. You should read your Bible, okay? This kind of stuff is going to show up throughout the book of Judges. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase 
chapters 19 through 21. For the sake of our time, we're covering several chapters, very long, and I'm going to stop and hit pause on key verses that help us with the storyline. So I encourage you outside of today to go back and read this in its entirety so you fully understand. And then while we're in the series, maybe you want to just carve out some time to read Judges with us, okay? So it's 21 chapters. We're going to be in this probably three or four weeks together. So I encourage you to do that as well. And so this book in these chapters, it reflects just how bad things had gotten for the nation of Israel. It reflects just how bad things can become when people had determined in their heart that they were going to do what is right in their own mind, when they become the judge, when they get to decide, when they determine right from wrong, this is a reflection of what happens during that time. And so let me give you the story. Let's talk about the story, and then we'll come, and we're going to spend most of our time in that story, and then we're going to wrap it up on what this looks like for you and I today, okay? So again, as we talked about the, the, the book of Judges, the nation of Israel, they were made up of these 12 tribes of people, right? And so these tribes of people... They constituted tens of thousands, some even say hundreds of thousands of people made up these tribes, and they're spread throughout this geographical area. And so here's where our story begins in chapter 19 as it starts to talk about one of these tribes, a member from one of these tribes. So here we are in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 19. It says, in those days when there was no king, say no king with me. There was no king in Israel, and a certain Levite. Now, he's going to be the main character for our story. We don't know his name. This is all we know about him. He is a Levite. He is from the tribe of Levi, okay? And so this is who he is. He was sojourning, which means he was kind of like a nomad. He was living in this area, but he was kind of passing through. But that's, that's what sojourning means. He was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took himself a concubine. Say concubine. So he takes himself a concubine. She's another player in this character, and we don't know her name. We don't know his name, but they're the main characters in our story from today. And so a concubine, if you know much about the Old Testament, this was something that was part of the culture. This was something that they did. They, they would show up all the time. It wasn't something that, that God approved of. In fact, this was a practice that was borrowed from the Canaanites. They would have concubines. And so a concubine in this time, she was She's kind of like a wife. She's more like a mistress. Uh, she's like a girlfriend. Her main purpose is actually pleasure. And the concubine, she would have all the responsibilities of a wife. She would help with the chores. She'd help around the house. She would help with the children. She would even help add children to the family, but she didn't get the benefits, the inheritance. So if, if there was something left to the children, her children would not get that, okay? So this Levite, he has a concubine from Bethlehem, all right? So that's where we are in the story. And then something happens with her in verse two. Here's what happens. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. She cheated on him. Shame, shame, shame. Everybody knows your name unfaithful to him. And so she goes away. She cheats on him and she packs her bag. She moves out of the house and she heads south to her hometown. Okay. So she goes to her father's house in Bethlehem uh, to them in Judah. And there uh, was four months. So four months passed by. And so we don't know why, but this Levite, he decides, maybe he became lonely. Maybe he was just feeling generous with forgiveness. He decides in this moment that he's going to forgive her that she had cheated on him, but something 
Okay, I, I, I want my concubine. And so he sets out, and this is part of the story. This is the context of what's going to happen and where they're going. So now they're going to set out on a journey. And so he says, I've got to go get my concubine. And so here's what he does is he, is he heads south and he goes to her house. He goes to her father's house. And scripture calls this guy the father-in-law. He's, they're not really married. So if, I don't know, if, maybe concubine-in-law, okay? But Father-in-law, all right? So he shows up at the front door, and, and he starts pounding on the door, knock, 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 knock. Hey, I'm here for your daughter. I'm here to sweep her away. I want to take her back with me. And so he knocks at the door. Father answers, and somehow he convinces her, we can make this thing work. I know you love me. I know we've made some mistakes. I can see this working. We're going to make this work. Just come home with me. All right, so he does that deal, and, and so she agrees, and then they decide, okay, we're going to go back home, we're going to work these things out, and then something happens. This father, in this moment, he begins to insist. He was like, you know what? It's late in the day. Why, why don't you just, just hang around? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. And so it's too late for you to travel. Just stay here. And so the first day that happens, the second day happens, the third day happens, and he keeps, what he keeps doing is he keeps feeding this guy wine. He's probably getting him drunk, and right? And so they wake up, it's sometime, maybe noon, and he's feeling groggy, he's hungover, where's the aspirin? And so now in this moment, every time, every day, he's trying to keep them, it's too late in the day for you to go and set out. And so this happens all the way up to the fifth day, and then the fifth day comes, and this is where he's kind of had enough. He's like, okay, today's the day, today's the day, we're going. We're going to set out. And so here in this story, we have the Levite, we have the concubine, we have a servant, and two donkeys, and they walk into a bar. <laughs> These are the players in the character uh, in our story. And so and here's what they're going to do. And so they're going to set out and they're going to head back home together. But because they had left late in the day, he's got a servant alongside them, they're traveling, and then the sun begins to set. And during that time, there wasn't you know, street lights and headlights, and, and so they decide, we need to settle down for the evening. We need to find a spot that we can stay for the night. And now we're in verse 14 and 15. Here we go. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah. Say Gibeah. The sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So Benjamin is the geographical area, and Gibeah is a town, a city, a village within the area of Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And so the sun is going down, and then they go and they show up in Gibeah, and, and let me just insert something in here that you may not know if you don't understand the context of that time. There actually existed what they would call the law of hospitality. Okay, it's kind of an unwritten law, but this is just as much a part of their culture. In fact, honor hung on this idea that when a stranger would come into a city, maybe they were travelers and they were coming through the city. These were small villages. There's no hotels. There's no motels. There's no holiday inn. No, we'll leave the light on for you. What's that, Motel 8? Six? Oh, yeah, you see. And so what they would do is they would actually find the city center. And in this case, there was a square. Oftentimes, it's where the well was. And they would go and they would sit. And then the law of hospitality would kick in. And in that culture, when you saw someone sitting there and they were a stranger, much different day than what you and I live in today, they would see them. They would recognize them. Small town, right? You don't belong here, do you? 
And so they would go and they would approach them and they would introduce themselves and ultimately they would invite them back to their home. And the law of hospitality demands, requires, that while this person is your guest inside of your home, that you are their sole source of everything. You feed them, you protect them, you look after them, you care for them. And so the law of hospitality exists. And yet, this Levite, his concubine, the two donkeys and their servant are just ignored. They're left in the middle of the city. Nobody comes up and nobody is inviting them back in their home. Nobody is showing them hospitality in that moment until this old man comes along. This old man, he's getting off work and he comes along and and, and he approaches them. He sees them. He introduces himself. And then through some small talk, they begin engaging in conversation. And then guess what they realize? We actually have something in common. We're actually from the same city. We're from the same hometown. No way, man. Yeah. Do you know so-and-so? And they make this small talk and they realize that they're both from the hill country. And so then the old man invites them back into their house and they go and they're being merry and they're having food and wine and they're enjoying each other's company. And this is where, this moment right here, and this is where the story goes, it takes this weird turn. It becomes really strange. It becomes absurd. And so let's read it together, okay? So this is verse, uh, I think verse 22. I might have 20 written up here. It's either verse 20 or verse 22. I think it's 22. I think I wrote on my notes the wrong thing. Okay, so here we go. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may, come on, help me, that we may know him. Now I'm giving you the PG version of this story, okay? This is like Adam and Eve should know each other, be fruitful, and multiply. Other scripture verses, translations, they're going to insert another word here. We're using this, okay? So send them out so that we can know them, all right? And so this idea, this absurd idea begins to introduce itself in this moment. Send out this guy, this guest, this stranger out here. And, and, and so it's important to understand why this was happening and what they were doing. So you, you might would think that this is just this vulgar act of gratification, but it's actually about humiliation rather than gratification. And so during this time, again, this is an idea that was adopted from the Canaanites. And then it was, shows up in Greek culture. It even shows up in the first century Roman culture. And so they would, when they didn't like a fella... Hey, we don't have strangers around here. I'm going to teach him a lesson. What they would try to do is they would try to humiliate them, and then the lesson would be so profound that the person would never do that thing again. And so they set out to humiliate the person. And so in Gibeah, this whole law of hospitality was not for them. They were not going to follow it. In Gibeah, hey, we don't do strangers around here. Well, maybe we do. We don't have strangers in these parts around here. And so here's what what they said, and and this starts to just baffle me how it could go this way. This is now verse 23, and he says, and the man, the master of the house, he went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Listen, he's coming to my house. He's now under my care. It is part of my honor that I have to protect him. Don't do this crazy thing that you're talking about doing. Don't do that. I have another idea for you. I've got, I've got another solution, okay? Let's, let's consider something else. And here's where he said, get ready. Here's what he says in verse 24. 
Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. And he says, violate them and do with them what seems good to you, what seems right in your own eyes. But against this man, don't do this outrageous thing. Now, if, if you're a father in here, especially a father of a daughter, even if you're a mother of a son or daughter, how in the world do you think this is the right thing to do? And how in the world do you make this trade-off? I have three daughters of my own. I don't understand this. So here we go in verse 25. But the man would not listen to him. This is the men outside. So the man, this is the Levite man, okay? The Levite man, he seized his concubine and he made her go out to him. Now, I, just context again here, okay? So here's the man. This is the Levite. This is the one. I've forgiven her. I know she cheated on me. I've forgiven her. I'm going to make my way down here. I'm going to win her over. We're going to bring her back. Look at how fast he flips on her in this moment. He decides, you know what? Oh, no, they're not going to do this to me. I'm going to put her in harm's Get it. Get out there. And he shoves her out the door, right? And so there she is. And this is where, okay? So I, I told you there's going to be a part of this. Go ahead and put it on the screen. This is the part where I need you to read it for yourself. So grab your Bibles, grab your phone, grab your notepad, whatever it is that you have your Bible on, and I want you to read 25 through 29. I'm going to give you 30, or, 30 seconds or so, Okay? I want you to see what happens in this. I'm not going to read it out loud. If you're watching online, you can hit pause. You can go and read this for yourself. Read it right now. So if you weren't able to finish reading it, you can read it, continue reading it while I'm talking. And so in this moment happens, there's something that is just so disturbing that takes place. And it's, it's, it's so violent and so horrific. And so... How did these people get here? Uh, and so the next morning, the Levite, he wakes up. And, and he knows what has happened. He was the one that, that pushed her out the door. He knows what has happened, but he assumes that she would have made it through. And now he's going to find her, and he's just going to you know, deal with what he's got to deal with. And he goes out, and it's, it's not the case at all. And she's laying there, and she's unresponsive. And, and so he decides that he's going to throw her over his shoulder, throw her on the donkey, and then they're going to continue home. And, and this emotion, as you can imagine, just begins to stir up within him. And, and anger just wells up within him. And, and, and he's so upset about what's happening. He's like, justice must be served. Something has to be done. Somebody has to do something. And so he decides, you know, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, and, and, and he grabs the, the, whatever he can find, and he's going to write 12 letters. All right? So he, he starts, and he, and he pens out his letter, and he explains the account of everything that's going to happen. And his idea is he's going to take these letters, and he's going to mail them to all of the leaders of the different tribes in the area, and he's going to demand that justice be done. And then as he's doing that, something dawns on him. He's like, you know what? They don't know me. I'm a nobody. They don't, they, I, you know, I don't even have a name in this story. I'm just a Levite. And says, you know what, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I got a way, I'm going to get their attention. I know they're going to pay attention. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a, a care package. Okay, you read it for yourself. I'm going to create a care package, and I'm going to FedEx it to everybody in the region. And then when they open their care package, they're going to be shocked. 
and they'll have no ability to just deny it. And that's what happens. And so everybody gets it. The leaders of the lands, the leaders of the different tribes, they open up their care package and they look inside and this grotesque thing is there. And then they, inside of themselves, something must be done. Something has to be done. And so then they're going to assemble all of the leaders and then they're going to make demands on the group of people there in Benjamin. And so now we're in chapter 20, verse 12 and 13. And so this is what all of the leader, leaders had set out to do in this moment. He says, and the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe, excuse me, wow, all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up these men, these worthless fellows in Gibeah that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. There must be justice in that moment. But the Benjamites, they had decided within themselves that they were not going to listen. You could throw that up here. They had already determined, I'm not going to do it. Like, we're the Benjamites. We will decide what's right and wrong. We'll decide what's true. We'll decide what's good and what's evil. We will decide. You let us handle it. We're not sending these guys out to you. We got this, right? And so the Benjamites would not listen in this moment to their brothers. These are all Israelites. These are all God's people. And so in this moment, we have this great tension that sits, and civil war is introduced in the nation for the first time. And so you have some 400,000 trained military guys for all of the other tribes, okay? And then in Benjamin, they rally together throughout their cities in their geographical area. They rally together some 26,000-plus soldiers, right? And so now there's this great bloodbath of a battle that's going to take place. And so all of the troops, they come and they gather around this Gibeah, right? And so now they're out here, and there's going to be this confrontation, and this looks like overwhelming odds. But something weird happens. On day one... This is what happens. On day one, the underdogs come out, and then they slay, I think it says, 22,000 of the Israelites. Day one, the underdogs, the Benjamites, they actually win. And then in day two, it's actually the exact same results. They kill 18,000 of the Israelites on day two. And this bloodbath, blood's just running through the soil, running through the area. And so now it looks like the Benjamites may actually win out in this moment and justice would be, not be served. And then comes day three. And so the Israelites, they gather together their military captains and they develop this strategy and they, they come up with a brilliant idea, right? And they decide, I know what we'll do. Because now they think they've got us on the run. What we'll do is we'll go into battle. We'll intentionally make it look like we're losing. And then we'll start to retreat. And then when we're in retreat, what they're going to do is they're going to, the Benjamites will chase after us. But we'll secretly have another group of military right around the city. And then we'll go in and we'll seize the city. And that's exactly what they do. And so in this moment, they actually take over the whole battle. And they win the battle. And they annihilate the Benjamites in that moment, and they go into that city, and they cut every person, every man, every woman, every child, and every animal down, and then they set it on fire. And then they go further. Then they go to every other city within Benjamin, and they do the same thing there, and they set everything ablaze, and they destroy everything, and nothing is left. And so now they're in this weird spot, right? And they come to this place, and, and here's, where, uh, here's where it says in verse 46 through 48. 
So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword and all of them men of valor. And here's why I'm reading this for you, because I want you to see this. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon for four months. So they killed all of the Benjamites, all of the men, but these 600 men, they escaped to the desert, and now they're hiding out, and they're camping out, and they're sitting over here in the reserves. And so here's what the Israelites are now doing. They, it, it, it finally dawns on them. What have we done? We've gone too far. And they begin repenting before God, and it's this weird account, and they begin repenting before God. We were 12 tribes, and now we've wiped out one of them. Now we're only 11 tribes. What have we done, God? How have we done this? And so now in this moment, one of them chimes up, and he raises his hand. He's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't forget about the 600. There's actually 600 of the men left. Remember, they went off into the desert, and so there's these 600 men. And this is where the story just keeps getting strange. And so another guy chimes up, and they're having this dialogue back and forth. And he's like, you, you know, what, 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 what? there's 600 men, but they don't, they don't have any women. It's not like they can be fruitful and multiply. It's not like the, the tribe can reproduce itself. Now they're wiped off. How are they going to come back? And so now in this moment, they have another idea, right? Uh, this is where they uh, had also made an oath. Sorry, I've got to insert this. So they had also made an oath that they would not ever let one of their wives go and be with a Benjamite, they would not allow that to happen. There was an oath. Let me show it to you very quickly. This is important. So this is 21 verse 7. What shall we do for our wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord, they made a covenant, they made an oath, that we will not give them any of our daughters for our wives. So now these 600 military men are still there. Their hope is that they can rebuild their population, that Benjamites wouldn't be wiped out of Israel's history forever but they don't have wives, and now there's a covenant, and they can't send any of their wives. And again, they're like, this mindset just goes down, 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 down. And so another guy chimes in, and he was like, you know what? I remember that there was this group, this tribe, that when we went to battle, they didn't show up. They were cowards. They hung behind, and they were from Jabesh-Gilead, right? And so in Jabesh-Gilead, these men... They didn't show up for battle, so let's, let's do two things at one time. We're going to punish these people. We're going to wipe out all of the males, all of the livestock, and almost everybody except for a select young group of women who have not known a man, okay? And so that's what their plan is. It's just going to boom, 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 spiral out, and so now they're going to bring these back and they're going to decide, this is what we're going to do. Here in 11 and 12, this is what you are to do. They said, kill every male and every woman who is not a... They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women. Okay, so they have these 400 women now. Right, you do the math. 600 men, 400 women. So they... They call the guys out of hiding. They pull them out of the desert, and they're like, listen, we got some good news and some bad news. Which one do you want first? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take the bad news first. Well, the bad news is we killed everybody you love. We killed everybody you know. We killed your parents, your dog, your cat. Oh, yeah, we burned down your house, too. But there, 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 there's some good news. We, we have some wives for you. We, we kidnapped these women, and now we're going to force them into a slavery, and, and whether they like it or not, they're going to help you reproduce. But, oh, I just remembered. There's also some more bad news. There's only 400 of them, and there's 600 of you, so somebody's not going to get a wife. Didn't they go even crazier, okay? So I, I know this is gruesome. I know this is graphic, and you're going to wonder why we're going all the way down this. I need you to see just how far it had gone. 
So then they're going to take it another step further. Because there was a shortage of 200, guess what they're going to do now? Now there is this festival that's going to be taking place. And they remember, they're reminded of the festival that's going to come. And so in this festival, there's going to be young women. There's going to be dancers. And then they set out in their hearts that they're going to hide. They're going to send the Benjamites and they're going to hide off in the bushes. And when the women come out and they start doing their their dance, they're going to go out and they're going to kidnap them again. And so now they kidnap these women. They bring them over to the Benjamites. And let me show you. Let's just look together how the book ends, okay? This is verse 20 and 21. And they commanded the people of Benjamite, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out and dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh. Verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so, and they took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to the inheritance and rebuilt towns and lived in them. And that's it. It's the end of the book. This is where it closes. There are no heroes, no winners. This is how audacious it had become. This is how disgusting it had become. And this is where the people of God sit in the balance in that moment. And from everything that I've seen, it's the most messed up, jacked up, perverse story in all of the Bible. And this is God's people. And so then the writer, he comes to this moment and he says, let me tell you how it happened. Let me tell you why something like this could happen. And this is the sentence, this is the phrase that helps us to see. And this is where the book ends. This is verse 25. In those days, there was... No king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And because there was no king, because there was no final authority, because there was no one who could impose the law of God, instruct them of the law of God, and keep them accountable to the law of God, because there was no binding moral consensus, because there was no king, here's what happened. Because there was no king in Israel, everyone did, and let's say this together, what was right in his own eyes. Because there was no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can somebody give me a, I feel like I'm going to be like T.D. Jakes up here in a minute, like slinging some, is this a snot rag? Sorry. Thank you. Should have had a hanky up here. Come on. Because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, okay? And so if we went back and we were to pull apart every character in here, every person, while as grotesque as we look at it, they had determined in their heart this is the right thing to do in this moment. You take the mob of people outside of Gibeah when they're banging on the door and they're sending them out. Hey, listen, we don't do strangers here. Strangers are not welcome here. And so it's our right to protect our city. They had determined in their heart to do what was right in their own eyes. The Levite, it was his right to give up the concubine. I mean, after all, she had cheated on him. She had betrayed him. His life was at stake. My, wife, my life is worth more. After all, she's a woman. 
And so it was his right. He had determined to send her outside the door and to push her out. The Levite, he decides that it's the right to dismember and FedEx. He determined it was right. The Benjamite decided that it was right to defend these people who had done this grotesque act. We're going to defend them to the core. I don't care what the law says. I don't care what we're supposed to do. I don't care about the justice. No, we're going to defend this case. The Israelites had determined they thought it was the right thing to do to go in and kidnap these young women or to murder off large groups of people. Talk about genocide in a way that's just recorded in the Bible, wiping out entire groups of people. Verse 25 again, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so why are we talking about this? What does it mean for you and I? What are we to gain out of this? And let's lean into it for a few minutes together, okay? And then we'll bring it all together and we'll close out and we'll pick up where we left off for next week. So these were the Israelites, okay? These were, these were God's people. And if you remember how he was establishing it, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's repeated throughout the Old Testament. These were the people who had seen the miracles. They had been a part of the deliverance. They had seen God's mighty hand. They had been a part of Moses' story. They had been a part of Joshua's story. And now these people, how did they get where they're living in the promised land, where they have everything handed to them? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. There is nothing lacking for them. How did they get there? And I, and I would suppose and I would argue that it, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't overnight. They didn't wake up one day and find themselves in this situation. What happened, and we see it, is that when there was no godly leader in place, when there was no king in Israel, when there was no Moses, when there was no Joshua, they were left to their own account. And inside the home, forget the culture for a minute, inside the home, parents, we begin making subtle compromises. I, I know that's what God says, but for me... And so compromise would be introduced into the home. And so it wasn't something that just happened over time. We're talking here, this was a 330-year span. And so what was happening is where subtle compromise was introduced into the lowest level, into the homes. Then their children who were being raised up underneath them were watching and onlooking, and they saw the compromise of their parents. And then what they did is they took that compromise and they built on that compromise. And so one generation followed in the footsteps of another generation. And now you're going to find this slow, gradual decay of society and culture and where they end up where they're doing things so grotesque in this moment that we can't read about it on a Sunday morning without being too perverse. And so over generations of time, this happens. This is also what happens, again, with, when godly leadership, when there's a vacuum of godly leaders inside of a community that doesn't uphold a standard, these are the kind of things that begin to happen, and here's the reality, and here's the conviction, and here's the, ah, we are more like the Israelites than we would like to think. In our day, in our time, in our culture, and in our own hearts, we are more like the Israelites than we would ever like to admit. And so, the Israelites, how did they get there? They had determined in their heart that I don't need a king. I don't need an authority over me. I don't need somebody else telling me what to do. I'm going to do me. You do you, boo. I'll do me, okay? 
I don't need a king. I don't need the authority. And so they had determined in their heart to do what was right in their own eyes. And as a culture, so let's go broad stroke for just a moment. As a culture, what was happening and what is happening now was the idea that we're that we would not have a place of absolute truth. In fact, we would have relative truth. And if you remember on Easter, I leaned into this for a moment. So let me just redefine and let me take you back here for just a minute. So here's the definition of it. So of, of relative truth. What is true for you is not necessarily true for me. And what is true for me may not necessarily be true for you. And as a culture, this is kind of where we're leaning more and more. And this is the thing that's propagated around our country, on college campuses, on our television, on our marketing, on our media. And I'm not anti those things. I'm just telling you, this is kind of the thing that's woven through the fabric of culture. And when this happens, when this happens in any society, and you go back and look at world culture and look at world history, when this kind of idea, when there is no absolute standards, when there is no moral consensus, and people begin doing what they believe that is right within their own heart, and you do what is right in your own heart, and you do what is right in your own heart, and we don't have a group consensus when there is no moral absolute or no moral truth, no absolute truth, when that happens, then culture begins to go down a slippery slope. And I, I love my culture. I love my country. I love my nation. But at the same time, my heart is becoming grieved. And if you are a believer, then you would say the same thing. When you look and you see what's pervasive in our time and in our culture today, then you would say, yes, this is the kind of thing that is happening. And so there's a cultural shift that's taking place. Individuals, groups, and societies are making themselves the final authorities without any reference to God. We have written him out of everything, and we're trying to take him out of everything. And when that happens, we are on a pathway to lead to the destruction that was very similar, that will be mirrored like the Israelites. And that's our path. And so we have this American dream, and I love it, and I'm for it. We have this unspoken side of our American dream. And it looks like this. I want the freedom to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. That's the unspoken thing that, that, that runs up underneath it. And, and, and because we're Americans, because we're civilized, we, we throw in this little caveat, right? And, you, and you're going to know this caveat. As long as it doesn't, let me put this up here, There's all synonyms. You're all saying the same thing. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. You do you. I'll do me. I'll look out for me. I'll look out for my family. Don't put your standards on me. Don't impose on me. You back off. You do your thing. I'll do me. And this is where we are. And this is how it's been unfolding. And so now we're in this place where as a culture, we're leaning into this idea that there is no absolute truth, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes, okay? I don't know if you remember what some of the other scriptures say about this. Let me just give you a couple of them in a hurry as we close out, okay? Proverbs 12, 15 says this, the way of A is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 14, 12, a couple chapters later, here's what it says. There is a way in which seems right to a man, but what happens 
it leads to death. I can determine what I believe is right in my own eyes. I can set my own agenda. I can set my own direction. But when I have strayed from the moral compass that is established by an absolute truth, because God does have a standard, when I begin to stray from it and I determine, I have the conviction, I decide, you decide, when that happens every single time, the pathway always, always, always ends in the same destination. It will always land in this place of death. We saw it in the literal death of all of Israel as there's genocide and massacre that takes place because everybody had decided what was right in their own eyes and it led to death. And whether it comes this side or the other side, that every single time the wages of this always ends in the same thing. And so inside of our culture, the demise of a society, our drifting away from God may be slow and almost imperceptible. It may be like we can't even notice that it is happening. But what it is doing, it is impacting future generations that are coming after us. And so if you're a parent, if you have influence, if you're in the marketplace, there are those who are looking into your life and you say, okay, 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 as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, it might... It might impact me, it might, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. What you're doing is you're setting the stage and you're setting the pattern and it may seem so minute to us, but there are generations following in our footsteps and you have followed in the footsteps of generations before us. And now because of that, our culture has taken a shift and we find ourselves where we are today, where there is no absolute anymore and everything is being redefined based on my emotions or my feelings or how I want to respond to it. God has a standard. He has an absolute truth. And this is what absolute truth, just in case you're missing it. Something that is true at all times and in all places. It is something that is always true no matter what the circumstances. It is a fact that cannot be changed. Israel were God's chosen people and they were meant to be set apart a holy people to look different than the world around them and yet they kept adopting the ideas from culture and Canaanite influence it is the reason why God said kick them out in fact wipe them off the face of this earth because he knew what was going to happen and their culture was going to permeate inside of God's unique brand of people what he was trying to do and for you and I I expect, we expect, and even God would expect the world to operate as the world's going to operate. But for you and I as believers, how much like Canaan do we start to look like when we make these little pieces of compromise and it infiltrates our lives? And so how far do we drift from the Word of God and God's standards? And so we need what Israel needs. We need a king. And you're going to find that the book of Judges sets them up for exactly that. That they find themselves in desperate situations that time and time again, that no matter what, the pattern keeps repeating itself. And they keep circling back there again, despite best intentions. And you and I find ourselves in the same situation too. And no matter how many times we try to fix it or we try to make it right on our own, our own we jump back on the merry-go-round and we find ourselves cycling back through the same monotonous thing. But there is a king, and there will be a king that is introduced 
you and I have access. And so because there is a king, he positions us to follow the standards that he sets before us. And then the challenge becomes, are you willing to be what the culture needs to see the living God as he's designed to be, as a reflection? And so men, women, the challenge for you is that we need godly leaders. We need people that uphold the truth of God in their lives, despite the times when it really is hard to do. And I get it. Nothing about Christianity is for the weak and the mild and the timid. But we would muster up the courage. We would muster up the faith and say, though it is difficult, though it is challenging, though it doesn't make sense in the world's eyes, this is a standard that I'm committed to living my life by. And if we would do that, let me, let me tell you the promise that comes out of the Old Testament, okay? This was set up as a, a prophecy, if you will. God had something to say to a group of people that would impact the generations. He says in 2 Chronicles, I think chapter 17, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if they will turn from their wicked ways, if they'll repent, if they'll pray and they'll seek my face, you know what I'll do? I'll heal their land. I'll change everything for them. So if you want to be a part of a generation that makes a difference in our culture, if it is more than just pep talks on Sunday morning where we rally the troops and we go back and we look like the culture around us, if you want to be a part of something significant, then it begins inside the home. It begins inside the individual heart. And you uphold a truth and a standard that, yeah, we come short, we fail, but the standard exists. It is God's absolute. And God, we want to honor you. Forgive us for any ways that we stray. Forgive us when we say, you know what, I'm going to do me and you do you. God, I want to do your way. I want to follow your way. Let's stand to our feet together as we pray. Guys, I'm, I'm going to go from the position of believers here for a moment, and, and I'm going to borrow your faith, if you will. And so maybe I'm praying for me, you can... Stay silent, disagree, whatever, whatever you want to do. But God, it's unfortunate when we read stories of Israelites and your people and, and they would somehow drift so far. And it is unfortunate, God, that, that as we look at the word, it's a mirror and we see ourselves and we see our culture and we see our own capacity for evil and sin and we see how it's pervasive not just outside the church, but, but inside the church. So God, we do, we need, we need a king. We need you. We need King Jesus. We need you to do what we cannot do. Your son came so that we could break the cycle of sin and the pattern that keeps us held down. And so God, First and foremost, in, in my heart and in my home, I say I'm sorry. God, I'm, I'm sorry for when I've gone my own way and I, I've made it about me and my own path. God, I'm sorry for when I've led my family that way, when there have been compromises that I've allowed. God, I want to lift up your standard within my own heart, within my own home. God, would you help me to do that? God, we as a church, we're sorry when we've gone our own way, when we've made it about us, when we've 
strayed from the things that you would have of us, trying to be relevant to a culture around us. And we're adopting ideas that influence us and change us from what you've designed. God, would you forgive us? Help us to do better. Help us to do different. God, it's pride and ego that keeps us from acknowledging the fact that we need you. And we need your authority. Not that you lord it over us, but you as our designer, as our creator, you know the best for us. And so we with open hearts just come to you and say, Jesus, be the Lord of our hearts. Be the king. We submit to you. And Father, if we're here in the room today and we've never done that, there's no better opportunity. Maybe that pattern of sin is, is very definitive of, of who we've been. You're, you're, the story is about you. It's about your love story. It's about how you are so faithful and you show up every single time that we're willing to call out. And so if you don't have a relationship with Jesus or you've strayed from that, it's simply saying, God, I need you. So Father, as we dive into this story, as we open your Bible, as we look at the book of Judges over the coming weeks, be with us, speak to us, and challenge us both in our hearts and in the culture and in our homes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.